introducing Mr. Kawada himself, my dad. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening, however you're listening, this is Quantum of History. I'm your host, Tony Waldron. Welcome into another episode. Today is going to be episode 31. We're going to be talking about the man with the golden gun. More specifically, we're going to be talking about the energy crisis of 1973, the Six-Day War, the Yom Kippur War, and what it all means today, what it all means going forward, and how it actually influenced another Bond movie, and why Bond is always, you know, either five seconds in the future or five seconds in the past. It's always very modern. It's what I love. It's why you can only do this podcast with James Bond. So I'm very excited to do this today, and my special guest today is going to be none other than my mom. That's right. The one you can blame. She, you know what, for better or for worse, everything I am, you can blame, you can blame on her. Right. So it's exciting. I'm excited to talk about that. I'm excited to talk to my mom to have her on here. And uh, this topic was one of those, again, I started with the energy crisis in 1973, went down the rabbit hole. And then before I know it, I'm researching Israeli, Palestinian, Egypt, Jordanian, six day wars, Yom Kippur. I'm finding out what Yom Kippur actually is. And all this other stuff that really, I just find this stuff so interesting once I start going down and asking questions. So it's going to be a fun episode. It's going to be an interesting episode, and I can't wait to go into it. First of all, just going to want to talk. If you haven't, if you haven't heard or you haven't gotten into the Bond Girl Bracket Challenge, this has gotten huge. I cannot believe the response. I'm so excited for the response. Thank you, everybody who's participating. This is going to be a lot of fun. If you haven't, go to my Instagram, Quantum of History Podcast. Go to the Instagram and uh, DM me if you want a bracket. The way the bracket is set up is that there are going to be 64 Bond girls and we're going to decide who the best is based on like an NCAA Final Four tournament. There are four regions. Harris Thomas has one. Uh, Joe Darlington from Being James Bond has one. Ray Crumpold from the Bond Armory has one. And Stan from Ozzy Bond Guy has one. What I did was I ranked the Bond girls from 1 to 64. I didn't rank them. I actually just got a list of 64. I started with Dr. No, went all the way down to the Spectre, listed all the Bond girls that are in there. And from that, we got 64 Bond women. From that, I went 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4. 1s went with 1s, 2s went with 2s, 3s went with 3s. So it was completely randomized. That gave me four uh, regions. Of those four regions, I gave one of those regions to each of those aforementioned people. Those aforementioned people then ranked them from 1 to 16. And if you haven't seen it, there are some there are some crazy matchups going on. Uh, like there's a 5-12 seed in Harris Thomas's where Pussy Galore versus Waylon in the first round is going to be an insane one. But if you haven't checked it out, again, go to my Instagram, DM me your email. I will send one out to you. The voting, the, the last day I will take, the last time that I will take any brackets is May 5th at 2.59 p.m. Eastern Time. After that, the voting will start. The way that the voting is going to start is I'm going to put polling on Instagram. I'm going to put a picture of each of the contestants of, or the... Um, the people facing each other. From there, people will vote which one they think is the better Bond girl. At the end, which is 24 hours later, on Thursday, I will have one of the regions or somebody to join on with me, and we will discuss and reveal the results of that week. We will do this all the way up until No Time to Die is released, and then we will have a crowned, the best Bond girl, uh, the unequivocal, the unchallenged, the, un- the undeniable best Bond woman ever. And we will challenge that right before No Time to Die gets released. And then we'll have something else. It'll just be something to pass the time. The winner, the prizes will be a t-shirt from Quantum of History. Also, the winner will also get two stylized outfits from their own closet from Harris Thomas of Dressing Like Bond. Basically, you're going to have Harris Thomas as your stylist for the day. 
and he'll give you two two outfits done. He'll do your own personal styling. Second place, we'll also get either a mug or sticker, whatever you guys want. Well, I'll, I'll decide. I'll get what the, the person that they want, but it's going to be a quantum history mug. So it's a really fun contest, a lot of stuff, and really cool prize that you know you get Harris Thomas as your personal stylist, and um, you have a T-shirt of quantum history which you can use to I don't know dry dishes or wear out whatever you want to do. So it's going to be fun. Again, if you haven't participated, if you haven't sent me, it's for everybody. And uh, just send me it. And I already have so many to grade. It's not going to be funny. But it's funny. Everybody's got different opinions. Everybody's got different um, views. Some of the ones I I have Waylon winning. I have I have literally everyone winning from Tracy to Vesper to Waylon to Pussy Galore to, I mean, everybody. Literally, I, I Honey Rider, I got a couple wins. I got Mayday beating Domino in the first round. There are some upsets. There's some craziness. So if you haven't done it, go ahead and check it out and DM me there. So without further ado, let's get right into the topic. The Energy Crisis 1973, the Yom Kippur War, and the Six-Day War. I'd like to just continue to be able to express myself as best as I can in history. And I feel like I have a lot of work to do. Still, you know, I'm a student of the drums. And I'm also a teacher of the drums, too. You know? <laughs> Let's first talk about Man with the Golden Gun, why I am doing the energy crisis in 1973. Now, I talked about this before, and the Man with the Golden Gun, you can tell that the book itself, if you look at the book, it's definitely written by, um, it's definitely the first draft. You can tell that it needs to be written. I know when I write these episodes or I write something, uh, what I do is I just throw away all my thoughts down on paper. I just let it fly. Just let it rip. Let it rad. And uh, whatever comes on, then it has to be one or another draft and another draft, another rewrite and stuff like that. And then things have to be put in there. I feel like The Man with the Golden Gun, the book, is very much the first draft that they're just kind of throwing out there. Also, what I find interesting about The Man with the Golden Gun is that it's very much centered in facing death, right? You're very much accepting your own mortality when you thought you were immortal. And I find that interesting because I, I, I think that there's a lot of instances where most artists are young, right? I mean, most of your music comes from 16 to 35-year-olds, right? I mean, if you're pushing 40 and still cranking out music, it's you're considered old and not trendy. So most of the artists and most of the influence that we have, most of the creative juices that flow happen early in life. And you rarely get to see people facing their own mortality that are also still staying creative. It's why I love Johnny Cash's most recent, his more recent albums, even more than I like his old stuff. Just because exactly, you're looking at a man who's who's facing his own mortality. You're not looking at someone at the start of their life, you're looking at someone facing the end. And I think that's a very different artistic styling. You're young, you're looking at all the happy stuff, you're looking at the positive stuff. And then you get to these artist reflections and then you find them later in life that are really struggling with their own mortality and such a striving force. So I just find it so interesting. And I think that Man with the Golden Gun, the book, is itself a reflection of that. Now going on to the um, movie itself, the movie itself was very rushed. I think it only took them a year, not even two years to crank out this one from Live and Let Die. And it suffers the same thing. It's it's rushed. It needs a couple more rewrites. It needs some fine tuning. Um, but 
I don't know why I shouldn't like it. I like this movie. I know. I know. This and The World Is Not Enough are my two guilty pleasures. Even though I feel like The, the World Is Not Enough shouldn't feel like a guilty pleasure, it kind of does to me. And this one is another one that I don't know why I'll put it on. Maybe it's the locations. Maybe it's, I don't know. I, 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 I kind of like this movie. I know that it has a lot of flaws. I know that I'm not going to deny that this movie has a ton of flaws. And one of them is the plot, you know, but where did the plot come from? So the plot is basically that James, they're trying to get this Solex, which is supposed to fix the world's energy crisis. Now, what's going on in the world at this time? The energy crisis. It's on everybody's thoughts. It's on everybody's mind is that what's going to happen when there's no more fuel? What's going to happen when there's no more electricity? What's going to happen when they, we run out of oil? What happens to the life that we've built? And Man with the Golden God touches on this and that Solex is supposed to be um, the one cure for all our energy crisis and what a novel idea if somebody has the the, uh, the fix for energy and the the unlimited and infinite amount of energy needed to you know sustain exactly the quality of life that we've all enjoyed so that was the basis of it and so what did it why did i want to do this i wanted to actually find out i mean it was enough of a of enough of a crisis that a james bond movie was was modeled after it it was a driving force it was a plot line so i wanted to go into it so, without further ado, let's just get right into it. This is what happened, this is what it was, and this was the energy crisis of 1973. Now, at the time the movie was being made, America was going through an energy crisis. Gas pump lines were hours long, fuel prices were spiking, and there was a panic that there was no end in sight. And by the 1970s, America was fully mobile. GM had bought up many urban train tracks and ripped them out of the ground for the sole purpose of making people buy vehicles. What GM would do is they would go into cities and they would buy railroad, these railroads because all these cities were full of tracks and trolleys and stuff like that. That's why San Francisco trolley is so revered now. It's one of the last ones left. But before, these trolley systems, they were everywhere. New York had them before subways and all this stuff. So people would drive by trains. What GM would do after World War II is they'd come into a place, they'd buy the train tracks, and they'd rip them out for no other reason, j just to get them out of the way so that people were forced to buy vehicles. And you can see everybody, that was the dream. Everybody had to have a, their own car. And you see this in West Coast cities in, in the United States. If you look at the difference between an East Coast city and a West Coast city, it's, it's, it's glaring. Look at uh, Las Vegas. If you go to Las Vegas or you look at, at Los Angeles or something like that, there's really there's a little bit of a downtown, but mainly you just see this sprawling city, just just houses and roads and highways and everything's built so much differently. And then you go on an East Coast city and everything's built up, not out. And you like New York City, up, everything's high because people were walking back then. People were using the public systems. They didn't they didn't have cars that they could drive out of the suburbs and come back in. So you look at the, the way that the cities were built, that was a glaring thing. So by the 1970s, and these, these western cities were being built, and everybody's going across, and everybody's moving to the suburbs. The reason that you can do this is if you have a car and a car alone. Now, what do cars go on? The only way that this works, if there are fossil fuels in, in order to power them, if there's oil and gas. And in 1972, the reality of how crippling the reliance on fossil fuels uh, could be came to fruition. To, go, to understand the, the energy crisis of 1973, we have to go all the way back to 1948. And in 1948, Great Britain gave up part of Palestine in order for displaced Jews to have a place to worship as their own. The land that turned into the nation state of Israel. 
The Holy Land is revered by both Jews and Muslims. Palestine never honored the new state of Israel, and neither did many other Arab nations. The fighting for this Holy Land continued, and does to this day still. Now, while Israel and Arab fought over the rights to the land, America encouraged an ever-growing oil consumption. It was believed at the time that the Organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC, needed the revenue procured from American consumption. American policymakers thought that no matter the political climate, OPEC would continue to sell to the United States. And what America didn't realize in 1973 was that America needed oil far more than oil needed America. And that's what it was. America thought that, look, we can do whatever we want because at the end they need our money. And then America never really thought, oh, you know what? Actually, um, we need that. We need that oil. <laughs> you got some of that oil? You got, you got some of that oil? So the question was answered in 1973. Who needs who more? Do I need, does America need oil more or does the oil need America more? And it was resoundingly that, you know, the industrial nation needs oil, needs their energy more than the rich people need their rich. Because again, they have money, they can set that out, but industry needs to keep going. In early October 1973, the Yom Kippur War began. The Yom Kippur War was part of an ongoing fight for territory the Israelis had gained in 1967 during the Six-Day War. The Six-Day War was a vital victory for Israel in the region and a point of conflict still today. The war happened on June 5th through June 10th of 1967. Israel, fearing mobilization of Jordanian forces, Egyptian forces, and Syrian forces, launched a preemptive strike against the Arab forces. Tensions in the area had risen to a boil from numerous previous strikes and plane shootdowns between Israel and Arab forces. Prior to this, Egypt and Jordan tried to maintain distance from conflict, choosing rather to support quietly than overt support. They relied on the United Nations to try to keep the order in the area. As tensions mounted, this was no longer possible, and support for Syria and the Palestinians was demanded by the people of Egypt, Jordan, and many of the other Arab nations. In response, King Hussein of Jordan and President Gamal Nasser of Egypt agreed to send forces to fight Israel. President Nasser also closed shipping off for Israel, creating a quasi-blockade. It was apparent that strikes were imminent. So on June 5, 1967, Israel launched an air assault of Egypt's air force, destroying 90% of their air force. Israel also simultaneously launched an assault on Syrian air force as well. This crippled the plan of air coverage for Arab troops on the ground in the Gaza Strip. In just a couple of days, Israel had claimed the Sinai Peninsula, the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, the Old City of Jerusalem, and Golan Heights. A ceasefire was offered by the United States, which Israel and Jordan quickly agreed to, Egypt shortly after, and the final holdout was Syria, which reluctantly agreed on June 10, 1967. All told, the Arab alliance lost nearly 20,000 troops compared to 700 lost by Israel. While attacks continued in smaller scale forms, it remained relatively stable until 1973 when the Yom Kippur War broke out. The Yom Kippur is a Jewish holiday that is known as a Day of Atonement. It is on Yom Kippur that God is supposed to decide a person's fate. In response to this day, Jews are encouraged to atone for their mistakes and transgressions. They have a 25-hour fast that day and spend the day in intensive prayer and religious ceremonies. Jews do not work, they do not partake in any activities other than reflection, atonement, and prayer. They do so in hopes of currying favor with God so that their fate may be one of positivity and fruitfulness. It is said that the first Yom Kippur occurred on Mount Sinai, where God first gave Moses the Ten Commandments. It was because of the knowledge that Israelis would be deep in prayer 
and unsuspecting that Egypt and Syrian forces lost a strike against Israel on October 6, 1973, which was Yom Kippur Day. Syrian and Egyptian forces were able to go deep into the Sinai Peninsula to Golan Heights. After regaining their footing, Israeli pushed Syrian and Egyptian forces out of Golan Heights. On October 25, 1973, a ceasefire was agreed upon and the Yom Kippur War was over. While missiles were no longer firing, the war was far from over politically. The repercussions of the Yom Kippur War set a chain of reactions that tempered the world. The Soviet Union began sending weapons and supplies to Egypt and Syria, while America sent supplies to Israel. As a backlash to America's support for Israel, an oil embargo was placed on America and the Netherlands. This caused a massive spike in oil prices. The Yom Kippur War ended by the end of October 1973, but the embargo did not. The embargo lasted three months, and in that time, oil prices went from $3 a barrel to 12 Gas lines were flooded. Home energy was affected greatly. The government urged people to not hang Christmas lights to save energy. The American automotive industry had to follow the trend of making bigger and bigger cars. These cars grew to be less and less fuel efficient as a result. And after the oil crisis, the Japanese industry for the first time surpassed the American automotive industry. The Japanese industry relied on smaller, more fuel efficient vehicles. And countries in Europe were told to, dr to limit driving, boating, and were even told to heat one room only in their home to conserve energy. The embargo was lifted in March of 1974, but changes were made. Domestic oil production became a priority, along with alternative means of energy. Nuclear power plants began to be built. Wind and solar energy were explored. The, auto the automotive industry started making smaller and more compact cars. Energy efficiency and environmentalism became priorities. It was a wake-up call to lawmakers how dependence on foreign oil was a major weakness that needed to be remedied. And since this wake-up call, America has allowed you to become self-sufficient on its oil dependence. And you can see the myriad of changes that have been done and will continue to be done in the future. But, it's, you know, it's one thing for me to sit here and talk about um, history and how it was. Let's bring out someone who can actually talk what it was like to live through it. So without further ado, let me welcome in my very own mother. Uh, welcome into the show, Ma. Come on! All right, welcome in, none other than my mom. Welcome in, Ma. How are you doing today? <laughs> Good. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And I, I, so for this topic, I was talking about the energy crisis of the 1973. And uh, my problem is I needed someone old enough to do this. So I thought, well, I know uh -huh. one old folk that would be down for doing to talk about this. And uh, that's why uh, I picked you, Ma. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> what a grand opening, right? What a grand thing. <laughs> well, this is my mom, so you guys can all, you know, blame her for everything that happened with uh, creating me. For better or for worse, everything I am, I owe to Ma, so thank you, and uh, welcome for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I'll take responsibility for you. You sure you want that responsibility? Well, we're on the air, so I'll go with it. <laughs> <laughs> <All right>. so, <laughs> sounds good. All right, so I remember when I was a kid, I remember before even doing the research, I remember as a kid you talking about what it was like in 1973 when the gas, thing, when the gas crisis and the energy crisis hit. Can you just kind of take us back, go back all the way back to 1973 when 
you were you were you know breaking hearts and stuff. Uh, what, what was it like in 1973 when the energy crisis first hit? Actually, it was like a modern day toilet paper COVID. <laughs> That's um, a good analogy. It, it really is. Um, there were we had started getting the bigger cars, so everybody had a station wagon or a bigger truck or whatever, and um, so we had we were all using a lot of gas. But back then, gas was anywhere between eh, forty and fifty cents a gallon. Hmm. Um, even though we were, we are not a rich community up here. We're very rural, as you know. And but that's what the price of gas was back then. And we all had bigger cars. Of course, we all had bigger families. Um, and in the October's of the 1973, when they talked about OPEC and the the oil embargo, what they did was. We had, everybody had a license, obviously, on their cars, and it was always like PL, and then there was three numbers. You got gas on, gas was rationed. It was rationed not only to the gas stations and stores, but it was rationed to the people. And if you had an odd number or an even number, that told you what day you could go and get gas didn't say you could get gas that day because gas to the gas stations were also, they gave a percentage, like um, say there was a little mom and pop store and they sold 10,000 gallons a year, but in the month of April, they usually sold 1,000 gallons. They were rationed a percentage of gas that they could receive, like 10, 15, 20%. It always changed. Um, So they didn't get the gas that they usually got, and then that was rationed to your customers. Mm -hmm. So you might be going, you had, it was an even day, you go down to your local little grocery store, and they're going to tell you, you can't fill up your car, you could get five gallons that day, according to whatever they got. Mm -hmm. So it was an odd and even on your license plate, and it was also what that gas station was allotted to sell and was allotted to buy. So there was, there was a lot going on and as far as being as- exacerbated, but there was a fear that, was there a fear that they, you know, there would never be gas again? They actually told us that it was, it was widespread. There was no more crude oil. There was, there was no was more the end of at it. all. There was not going to be any more. Oh, wow. So what, what, and it's it, so much like the COVID of today with the misinformation um, and fear. Yeah. And I was reading it that made was, people. Yeah, I was reading a thing that people it, thought it that made it, people actually. Go ahead. No, I was I was reading that they actually there was a thought that the oil industry was just keeping it over on over in the uh, over on these carriers and just waiting for people to just so that they could raise the prices and people had no idea what was actually going on, right? Just like we're talking about the misinformation, you didn't know what information to trust or what was actually going on because you're so far removed from the know, right? You're right. And back then, we didn't have CNN, NBC, Fox, and, and all those. We didn't have the media coverage, the cell phones, the Twitters, the Facebook, all of that. We had none of that back then. Uh, we didn't have cell phones back then. You're lucky you had round um, wheels when you were a kid. <laughs> 
Well, they were just coming out back then. <laughs> but right, then... you rode your brontosaurus to work, and we did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if we were lucky enough to have a job, but that back then we did a lot of carpooling when this first started up. Um, that was one good thing that came out of it, but of course it ended. Um, if people worked in our biggest city would have been Plattsburgh. Um, when they worked down there, they worked at the mill, they worked at the hospital that was down there. And if you went to local college, Plattsburgh State, your mom would get on the phone and call those people and say, hey, can you give my child a ride down to the college or wherever? Because there just wasn't any gas. A lot of cars just sat in the driveways because there wasn't enough gas. If you and not all of these gas stations would just pump gas all day. Some of them would go from 9 to 12. Some would say, I don't have any gas at all. Even though it's your day to get gas, I don't have any. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sold out. So gas was in very, very short supply. Um, people would, it, back then, you could actually siphon gas out of your vehicles. You can't today. They got a little screen in there, but... Um, well, only little hoodlums would know that, by the way. <laughs> you're out there, st- you're out there, st- you're out there stealing gas, trying to get. Well, I said only little hoodlums would know that trick. <laughs> well, my brothers actually thought it was a good idea to try to teach me how to do that. <laughs> it was not a good idea. I'm sure. Pull too hard and get a fa- mouthful of gas. Oh, it was awful. Oh my gosh, <laughs> stays with you for days. I'm sure. I only did it once and never again. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, then it got into, well, how do we run our school buses? Yeah. How do we, how do these farmers, which back then there were still farms in this area, um, and the milk truck would not come to get their milk. They couldn't run the, the tankers. Um, there, there, it affected a lot, a lot, a lot of people. Um, it made people lie steal i mean everybody had extra license plates all over in their house yeah and back then you used to keep your license plates now you got to turn them back in and if you had one with an odd or an even you just switch your license plate and try to go down and get a couple more gallons gas well that's great i I can't imagine what kind of hysteria Um, that would be i mean you look at even the kind of hysteria it caused this last year and a half of what you're looking at how people reacted and just the craziness that comes out of people. I can't imagine what it would be like if, hey, there's never going to be any more oil. Like, you're not going to be able to heat your house. You're not going to be able to drive anymore. Like, your way of life is now ceasing to end. I can't imagine the kind of panic that it would be. Right. And we had all gotten rid of our horse and buggies, so. <laughs> yeah. And your brontosauruses. <laughs> and our brontosauruses, so. And it really, it made a lot of, the younger generation, which I was back then, it made us kind of panic. Mm-hmm. The older ones were used to the, the big gardens, and they were self-sufficient. They knew how to handle everything. They had been through so much. Yeah. And, but the younger ones who wanted to drive cars, and we were t- we couldn't drive cars uh, because there was no gas. And mom and dad or whoever that had to go to work they had to have the gas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can imagine. I can't imagine what that would be like today because 
we're so far removed from being self-sufficient as your own individual. People rely on other things so much. I, I can't imagine what that would be like today. So after that happened, what, what did you see as far as once the embargo lifted and, and life went back to normalcy a little bit, how long did it take for people to kind of forget about the oil crisis or did it, how long did it take for people to just be like, no, that, that was a, a blip or people just forget about it? I think my generation will always remember that yeah. um, as we talk about, you know, we get together and we talk about things. People my age all remember that mm -hmm. just like people today will always remember COVID. Yeah. Whatever you think of it, they'll always remember that um, gas prices first. Like I said, they were they were in the 40s, 50 cents a gallon and then they went up to 60 and 75 and a dollar and then they went over a dollar and everybody thought that was the end of the world that they went over a dollar. Mm -hmm. But of course your wages back then were, were not, you know, what they are today. Um, and they never went back down. We were kind of promised that they would go back down and they never went back down. So if you were working for $2 and 35 cents an hour, um, now you had a lot bigger expense because gas just tripled yeah. and it stayed in it. Obviously it never, I don't know what your gas is down there, but right now we're, we've been at two ninety five for quite a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We, we're just about, we're, we're just about touching three now in Maryland. Same thing. And it keeps, I'm sure it'll keep going up. And but. I and I think that it made my generation a little bit more appreciative mm -hmm. of neighbor helping neighbor yeah. um, and what we had instead of I'm entitled to, we were not entitled to it. And it was a whole different mindset where you helped your neighbor, you gave rides, you talked to one another. Um, and I don't see that today. It's kind of everybody for themselves but yeah um, you know, i think as we've become more silos even our entertainment you look at our, what we do for entertainment you don't have to leave the house to be entertained before you'd have to go outside and and go find your own entertainment now today you just literally can just sit in your own house and do whatever you want and there's endless entertainment at your own house so i think we've really become silos as as opposed to be neighborhoods and it's definitely the human interaction is it's a different um you know uh, conduit in which we which we which we communicate, and yet you have a, exactly what I was going to say. You may have more entertainment, but you don't have the interaction with other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, at yeah. all, you know, it, it's so many people don't even know their own their next door neighbor. Where, right, and you know, I'm lucky up here uh, in the middle of nowhere that I still do know my neighbors. And for, for the better, most for worse. part, for better, for worse, good, bad, and ugly, and everything. <laughs> and you know who, <laughs> who everybody is. Yep. But, you know, I, I was just looking at some things. And um, back in 1970, the hourly rate was $1.50 an hour. So you, you, you so know, when you, and your gallon of gas did, was not, I mean, what, 10 miles to the gallon tops for those cars? 
Right. I had a big Ford Galaxy was my first <clears throat> vehicle. <laughs> Ford Galaxy. You could put just... a family of nine in it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I bet you that thing, yeah, but almost got single digits to the gallon. Probably, but that was what, you know, I, I drove it to college until the, the frame broke. I mean, yeah. we really drove our vehicles until they were. Yeah, they were cast iron really and everything gone. back then, right? They were. Yes. And, you know, then from the station wagons and the big trucks, we started getting into all of the, the Japanese and, and overseas vehicles. Um, I had a little Chevy Vega. My very first brand new car was a Plymouth Arrow. And I paid $4,000 for it. And I thought, oh, my gosh, how am I going to get myself out of all of this debt? <laughs> and it was a little four-speed who wouldn't make it up a hill without bringing it back down into second gear. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I got great gas mileage. That was the important thing, right? I mean, you even look at what happened to the Ford Mustang in the 80s. It became a compact car. Like, you could see the, you could see the repercussions of it, for sure. Yes. All right. Yeah, you even think of what I have up back with the Mustang. I mean, that's a three-speed, I think. And we would go over one of our local hills here, Rusha Hill. You know, we'd go over at 10 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Tractor trailers would go by us. I'm like, <laughs> really? <laughs> well, yeah. That's, but that's it was a-, a totally different time. And this COVID thing brought back a lot of those memories where you stayed home more. But back then, you had family. Yeah. You had big families. I'm from a family of nine and then all their kids and, you know, like all your cousins, all your aunts and uncles. And we did things together as a family on Sundays. We'd have family dinners. Mm-hmm. We'd yeah. have pig roast. We do. We just get together, you know, and play horseshoes in that. And unfortunately, I don't see that much today anymore. Yeah, I think that that was so also part of the mental health. So family values have gone. Yeah, I mean that's part of the mental health stuff that happened. Is you got you're you're quarantined and then you don't have the support system that everybody had. And before you know it, you're just staring and you're working from home and you're staring at a computer all day. You're staring at your phone all day. It definitely you definitely miss the human interaction of it. Absolutely. And back then, and when I was younger, even we we were very poor we were poor and our toys were like old tires we'd take old tires and roll them around and make noises of cars and that but we were together and we had the interaction we thought about things new ideas how could we make this tire go faster (laughs) push faster (laughs) let's go to the top of the hill put the littlest one in there and push her down Oh, they used to do that to me all the time. I hate that. <laughs> and, and you know, now I look back on it and think that those were the very best times where they did. They stuffed me in a tire with my head in an empty tire and they'd roll me down the hill. <laughs> so, again, this is what I came from, I was, guys. So this, this is why I am the way I am, <laughs> is that my mom was thrown down a hill in a tire a lot. So. Well. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so yeah, much, Mom, for coming on. We did a lot on. of snowing. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. Thank- and I, I enjoyed, actually, it brought back a lot of good memories because we we did have a lot of good times and it kind of forced us together because we couldn't travel. So. Yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. Well, thank you again for coming and on. It was Ma. more neighbor helping neighbor. Absolutely. You know, hopefully, maybe one day I'll get back to it, but I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. But thank you for coming on today, Ma. Yeah. And uh, I appreciate it. Thanks for the stories. And thanks just for bringing us back to um, when you were young eons ago. <laughs> well, thank you so much for asking me to be on. It was a pleasure. And I will take full responsibility for you. <laughs> Even though uh, you're a lot like your dad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, you'll be you'll be the only one that wants to actually take responsibility for this. So thank you again, Ma, as always. Uh, love you, and thanks for you for coming on today. All right. Love you too, bud. Right, bye. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you so much, Ma, for coming on. I can't thank you enough for coming on, taking your time out, and talking about what it was like in 1973 to deal with that. Uh, for better or worse, she's the one to blame for me. So everything that I am, I owe to her. So thank you, Ma. Love you. And uh, thanks for coming on today. And just some final reflections on the thought on this topic and about the energy crisis moving forward is that the, the, the industrial world will always need energy. Now, whether that comes in solar, whether it comes in fuel, fossil fuels, whether it comes in electric, whether it comes in nuclear, there will always be a need for energy because we have to power the lifestyle that we have now created. In the last couple of centuries, there are, our need for energy will only keep going up and better, more efficient forms of it will have to happen. We can't always be on fossil fuels because at some point our need for it will not be met by the fossil fuels. I understand that. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think that, you know, you've got like the Keystone Pipeline, that which was shut down. I don't believe that's going to be shut down for very long. And just in, just for this administration and eventually it will be put up. It's too big of a project. There's too much money. There's too much need for it. And as you see gas prices going up, there's a reason that we have low gas prices here in the United States is because we can we make our own oil. We don't have to deal with all the other stuff. But if you shut down the pipeline, there's still the need for oil. That doesn't change. The, the demand does not change. If you cut the supply and don't change the demand, all you do is raise prices. It's simple economics. So I don't understand why they thought that was a great idea because eventually, the, I mean, you can see it. It will turn. We will be off of fossil fuels at some point. So, but the the need for the demand doesn't change. So now we have to go back and we have to import more oil than we did export. Well, you know what happens when you have to import? You have to get it shipped. You have to get it done. You have to get it done by other places, and then you have to get it shipped across the country. Then you have to get another one and get it across the Atlantic or the Pacific or all this other stuff that you have to do. The demand doesn't change, and now you've actually just created more of a problem than you actually had when we just had it right there in the pipeline. Instead, you have to go and create all these other things. And to get an oil tanker across the Atlantic Ocean or across the Pacific Ocean is no easy task. So uh, it, it, it's all in perspective, right? But that's the problem with these multinational corporations that they have to find is that whether it's in the United States, whether it's in OPEC, oil, whether it's in Emirates, whether it's in Israel, wherever it is, Azerbaijan, Iran, Russia, when you have to deal with all these things, you have to deal with regimes. And regimes and politicians are not always the most informed. In fact, they are rarely, rarely, rarely actually very well informed. They have other agendas that they may have, other paradigms and other thoughts that they may have that may not be in line with business interests or, or who, who knows what kind of interests they are. And they have, may have self-interest that they just don't like um, this business and say, no, you can't have it anymore. And now you've got billions and billions of dollars and you know an entire industry relying on the, these products and it's at the whim of somebody who just can be willy-nilly and with the sign of a pen just can do things without thinking of the repercussions or not even caring about the repercussions of those actions. Um, so, it, you know, it, it'll always change. I think fuel 
and energy again will always be there. But it was a, it was it was it's good it's good fodder for a good Bond movie, and I always like a good plot where you know something like that is at stake, rather than you know drugs or something like that. So again, Man with the Golden Gun is my guilty pleasure. Um, I don't know why I like it. I know I shouldn't like it. And if you guys have not done your bracket last chance, go ahead and do this. I'm going to do this episode on YouTube too. If you haven't checked it, like, follow, subscribe, leave a comment on the podcast, like for this YouTube, all that fun stuff. And also follow me on IG at Quantum History Podcast. Thank you guys so much. Thank you again to my mom. As always, thanks for coming in. Next week will be a really good one too. And as always, stay positive out there, guys. And I will see you next time.